Good morning. Uh, if you're in the three and four year old class, you guys are dismissed to head on to your class. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you've got your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We'll begin reading in verse 12, and we will read all the way through to verse 21. And we have so much to cover, we have no time to spare. So verse 12. And then we'll pray together for understanding. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he being Jesus, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you, you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. All right, let's pray to God for understanding this morning. Father, we come to you, um, and uh, I'll just be honest, I feel somewhat overwhelmed by the amount of things in this text that we could draw our attention to, and, and we just so I, I come, we come to you now, and we just pray and plead, would you, would you meet with us this morning over your word? Would you help us to look at what you would have us to look at? Would you help us to understand what you would have us to understand, God? We pray that you would work the miracle of, of clear speaking by the power of the Spirit and work the miracle of clear hearing, understanding, and applying to our hearts by the power of the Spirit. God, we pray that by the end of this sermon, by the end of studying this text, that we would behold Jesus in a deeper way than when we walked in the doors, Father. And Father, as we go out, that as people look at us, as people look at us, they would behold Jesus in a clearer way. 
by the ways in which we've been changed by this text. So we just pray, speak now by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have been following along with us in the Gospel of Mark, uh, you maybe, maybe you noticed it, but you may have recognized in this passage a technique that the author uses to make his points, a literary technique. Does anybody know the technique that I'm talking about? Sandwiching. Man, somebody got it. So if you haven't been with us, let me briefly explain. When Mark writes in the Gospel of Mark, he uses a literary structure that we have called sandwiching to make his points. In other words, he writes the story in a structured way, an intentional way, so that there are two outer stories that share the same theme, like two pieces of bread on the outside of a sandwich, which complements what's in the middle. So the entire book, actually, of the Gospel of Mark is one giant sandwich. So if you weren't with us all the way back in Mark chapter 1, you may not know this, but in Mark chapter 1, the book begins with Jesus' baptism, and at Jesus' baptism, Mark describes the moment where the skies tear open, the Greek word schizo, it rips open, and the voice of God is heard declaring, this is my beloved son. And then you work through the whole Gospel of Mark until the very end of the story, and there's another tearing that happens, schizo, the Greek word, the only other time it shows up in the Gospel, and this time it's at the death of Jesus, And the veil in the temple, schizo, it tears open, and a voice is heard declaring, surely this was the Son of God. But this time, it's the voice of the Roman soldier who had just crucified Jesus. It's a giant sandwich, both ends saying, this is the Son of God, and everything in the middle proving that point, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in the case of this sandwich this morning, uh, it's a much smaller much simpler, bite-sized, kind of more Oreo-sized, right, sandwich. And you can see the structure. A, Jesus rebukes a fig tree, right? B, Jesus cleanses the temple. And then back to A, the fig tree withers. So fig tree, temple, fig tree. The fig tree story is meant to help us understand the temple story. And the temple story is meant to help us understand the fig tree story. So let's begin with The fig tree story, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This is weird. Right? I mean, what? What? in the world is going on here. I mean, imagine overhearing this and watching this from the perspective of the disciples standing with Jesus, right? You're walking along, going into Jerusalem. You've had this big climactic moment where you've had this royal entry, and they're, they're singing, Hosanna in the highest, save us, we pray. And, and Jesus has said some pretty crazy stuff in the past, but this is particularly odd, 
He gets distracted by a big, beautiful fig tree that looks like it's in leaf. He goes to the fig tree, sees that it looks externally like it should be producing fruit. But upon closer examination, Jesus discovers that it is fruitless. And then Jesus appears to get angry at the tree and rebukes the tree. He even curses the tree, saying, you're never going to have fruit again, tree. A little out of character. I mean, if I had that kind of temperament, I'd pretty much have cursed everything I've ever tried to grow in my backyard, ever. There's like three blueberry bushes and a lemon tree that I would have cursed three years in a row. And if you were to walk up in my backyard and I'm chewing out a tree, you would have questions for me about my sanity. Is Jesus, what, is Jesus hangry here, right? Is he just displaying the, the emotions of hunger and anger wrapped up into a moment where he then becomes irrational. Some of you know exactly that emotion. Some of you husbands know exactly that emotion in your wives. The story's weird, and then it just moves on. The story just kind of moves on from the fig tree incident. Everybody's kind of like, well, that was strange. They move on, and, and honestly, it doesn't make sense until we circle back around at the end, but the story transitions straight from the fig tree to Jesus' now entrance into the temple. Mark 11, verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. Now, now let me pause here before we explore what happens on the entry of the temple, because I think it's important that you visualize what Jesus is walking into. I know for me, as I've read this story growing up, I've always envisioned a room about this big. And Jesus coming in and sort of being frustrated about what's going on and flipping tables and getting upset. But, but I want to throw a picture up on the screen, uh, should be the next one, of the temple. And the picture looks big, but I, I want you to listen to the dimensions here of what Jesus is, is entering into on this day. The temple consisted of four divisions— The first being that outer wall, the largest division known as the Court of the Gentiles. The place where you could come in and worship the one true God, no matter what nation you were from, didn't have to be part of Israel. But that outer fenced area, that outer wall, is 500 yards by 325 yards long. Meaning that the the temple was 35 acres. 35 acres in land area. And in closing the portico there, you, you have columns, rows of columns, 35 feet tall. So massive it would take three grown men reaching others, others' hands to encircle just one of the columns. That would have been a massive building project. Praise God, I don't have to do that or lead that. In this large court, so this 35-acre region of area, there would have been merchants selling sheep and doves and animals and rams and goats for sacrifice, and there would have been 
money exchanges for those animals. So many people would pilgrimage from all over the world to sacrifice to the one true God. But instead of bringing an animal with them, which would get hurt along the way or sick along the way and no longer be without blemish, rather they would convert that to money, bring it to the temple, and then just buy their animal for sacrifice at the temple. But here's the problem. You couldn't just use any money in the temple to buy an animal. You had to have that money exchanged because the temple would not take money with pagan gods or images of Roman rulers on it. It had to be money without images of the false gods if you're going to spend it on worshiping the one true God. So therefore, money exchanges were set up, and all of this was overseen, of course, by the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders. Now, again, we underestimate the enormity of the operation. In AD 66, Josephus comments that on Passover that year, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed in worship to God. This is Passover week that Jesus enters into the temple. Jesus is entering into a massive spectacle of epic proportions designed to point people to the glory of of the one true God. Here enters in Jesus God in the flesh into the temple that was dedicated to worship the one true God. And this is how he enters, verse 15. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And again, we're left going, is Jesus just having a bad day here, right? First the fig tree, and now really surprising behavior. I mean, as far as the New Testament's concerned, I mean, Jesus, uh, it looks like Jesus just straight up loses his cool, right? I mean, he enters the temple and he begins to drive people out, overturn tables. It is unlike anything we've seen of Jesus. I mean, we've seen Jesus get intense at times, specifically with hypocrisy, and we've seen him use strong language when Peter tried to stop Jesus from making his way to the cross, right? We've seen Jesus use strong words, but now we see a literal physical response from the meek and humble Jesus. I mean, in John chapter 2, verse 15, it says that Jesus literally makes a whip of cords in order to drive out the animals, the sheep and the oxen, and it says that he poured out coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And this is what we should want to know from this text. What in the world could provoke Jesus, the sinless one, to this degree of righteous anger? In other words, why was Jesus so mad? I mean, after all the stupidity we've seen from the disciples over the last several chapters, why in the world was Jesus this provoked to this level of anger when he enters the temple? We, we as Christians, we should care, right? I mean, really, all people should care pretty deeply about the kinds of behavior or attitudes that would infuriate the divine Son of God, <laughs> So we need to 
here's our path forward. We really need to look at, at several things, we're, but we're going to just look at, at two big truths about what the temple was designed for. And we're going to see how those designs were ignored. Look at verse 17 where we get a little more clarity. Where Jesus begins to open his mouth and teach why he is reacting this kind of way. Verse 17 says, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So, did anyone, just in, as I was uh, going through the physical magnitude of the temple, did that um, correct maybe some misassumptions of the temple? Did you have a smaller vis- vision of the temple in your mind, physically, right? I mean, me too. Just like you've got sort of a presupposition of the smallness of the temple physically, you also have a presupposition of the smallest of the temple theologically, and how important it is in the story of the Bible. We underestimate just how important this temple is from Genesis to Revelation and what it means for us. And so Jesus, quoting from Isaiah 56, points to two very significant purposes for which the temple was built, beginning with truth number one. Truth number one, the temple was built for drawing near to the presence of God. Jesus says this is supposed to be a place of prayer where people can commune with the eternal creator of the universe. It was to be a place where people draw near to the presence of God. Now, a few weeks ago, I said uh, we were talking about kingdom, and I said, you know, you could tell the entire biblical story through the lens or along the thread of kingdom, the kingdom of God, and then the opposing force, the kingdom of man that refuses to submit to the true king over the world. But at the same time, that's not the only thread you could use to tell the biblical story. You could also use the theme of God's presence among God's people. So if you consider the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was a temple of sorts for Adam and Eve. In the beginning, in the garden, God himself was very much with his people, present with them. He makes himself manifest. He walks in the presence of the garden with his people. There was, there was no separation, no shame, no fear. Humanity felt at home with divinity. Humanity felt at home with God, and God freely drew near to them as they freely drew near to God. There was relationship between man and God until sin comes into the world, right? Sin enters in the world, and for the first time in the history of the cosmos, God's presence was not a safe place for the people he created. So notice in Genesis 3, verse 8, after they'd sinned against God, this is what we see unfolding. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin created something in them which no longer drew near to God, but they recognized that they needed to hide from God. Sin introduced shame 
It introduced guilt. It introduced separation. Sin is not safe in the presence of a holy God. Therefore, they recognized sinners would not be safe in the presence of a holy God. He said it would lead to death. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, right? They are removed from the place of God's manifest presence to live in a broken world where they would feel separation and distance from God, a distance that is still felt today. Now, if the story of the Bible ended there, the Bible would be a tragedy, right? Rather than a story of redemption, but praise God, the Bible story doesn't end there. God starts to make promises. He starts to take steps to teach his people why his holiness is dangerous to them, how serious their sin is, and how he plans to rectify the situation. So the temple was a big part of God's demonstration of his holiness, the sinfulness of people, and how God planned to rectify the situation. So in the book of Exodus, God manifests his presence again, this time on a mountain with fire, and the message is, don't even touch the mountain. If your animal touches the mountain where my holiness is, it will die. So the message is clear. My holiness and your sinfulness puts you in a dangerous space if you enter into my space. What you need, as people, is a miracle. What you need is a miracle of God somehow allowing you into his presence without you getting consumed in the process. You need a burning bush-like miracle where the bush is engulfed in the flame but is not burnt up. So how will sinners be engulfed in the flame of the presence of God and enjoy it once again? without being burnt up. Well, the rest of the book of Exodus provides some provisions, some steps. Build a tabernacle, which would later become a temple. And in this temple, God's presence would be manifest. It would be a symbol of God's desire to dwell with his people, but the sin that separated them from him. Everything about the temple pointed to God's plan. And God's desire to return his people to a garden of Eden-like presence with God through blood sacrifice, right? So if you're unfamiliar with the temple, the whole temple became more glorious and more lavish as you moved into the center. If you could pull that picture back up. Uh, I know it's not in order there, but if you could pull that picture back up. As you moved closer to that building in the, ce- the center, particularly that tall building, you, you moved closer to the Holy of Holies. And as you got there, things became more ornate, more ornate, more beautiful. In fact, what you would see all around you would be images that reflected a garden. Even the lampposts themselves were in the shapes of the tree of life. And the idea was, in this center box, this holy of holies, God made his presence dwell. But separating you from that presence was a veil, showing that you could not enter into this presence freely. And on that veil were woven golden cherubims, these angels guarding the presence of God. Similarly to the end of Genesis, when they're kicked out of the garden, God puts 
angels guarding the entrance to the presence of God. The only way to enter that room was through God's very specific way. A high priest once a year with the blood of a spotless lamb to commune with God and pray for the people and ask for forgiveness for the sins. And outside of that very special day, the Day of Atonement, outside of that, sacrifices and prayers were made constantly in the temple courts, worshiping the one true God. The whole system made a way for you to draw near to God, but it all pointed to a way that would be made one day through a perfect sacrifice yet to come. You see, in Jewish life, Worship in the temple was the height of spirituality. It was the way you expressed and experienced relationship with God. It's the place where you prayed and where you gave thanks and where you repented of sin and where worship was given. And and, and we can just pause here for a moment and we should just be stunned that the holy God of the universe desires your nearness, your worship. But he also desires you to see him rightly. He he, he aims for you not just to draw near to a God of your own creation, but to draw near to God as he really is, holy and righteous. The temple was a reminder that God desires to be near his people, but that sin very seriously separates people from God. And as Jesus enters in the temple, what he finds is that the priorities of the temple's original creation have been forgotten or ignored. So like a fig tree with beautiful leaves that looks good from the outside, the temple, a beautiful spectacle from the distance, but upon closer examination was a fruitless enterprise. Verse 17 of Mark 11. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, you've made it a den of robbers. So the den of robbers language, obviously not good, right? Comes from the Old Testament. Jesus is bringing a situation that happened hundreds of years prior and saying, You're just like the Israelites of old who got this temple destroyed. You're sinning in the same way that God's people have always sinned. You take the good gifts of God and you ignore the God who gave them to you. <laughs> and you turn them into things that worship yourself rather than the one true God. There's corruption here happening that has always been happening among the people of God. There's a brokenness here being put on display in the place where God was supposed to be put on display. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1, where Jeremiah similarly warned the people in the temple. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 2, Jeremiah says, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds. I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, 
If you don't oppress the sojourner and the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, if you don't go after other gods to your own harm, then, then I'll let you dwell in this place in the land I gave to the old of your fathers forever. Behold, you trust deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you've not known, and then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Why is Jesus so angry here? He enters into the place where God is to be worshipped. And he finds hypocrisy. He enters in the place where God is to be glorified, and he finds the glory of God being exchanged for money and selfish ambition. This is big business happening in in the temple. Merchants are selling animal sacrifices in the court for inflated prices with temple taxes. Merchants are exchanging money, but that money was taxed by the temple leadership. Worship was happening in the temple for sure. Worship was happening, but it wasn't worship of the one true God. It was worship of comfort, possessions, money, and self, all in the name of the one true God. It was the worship of self with the name of Yahweh on their lips. Why is Jesus so angry? Because he enters into the place where God was supposed to look supremely valuable. And he found upon closer inspection that God was being made to look worthless in the lives of those present. See, along the way, The goal of the temple was no longer to draw near to God at all. No longer about having right relationship with God. No longer about hearing and obeying his word. No longer about offering worship. The glory of God had been exchanged. In fact, the text says that Jesus was stopping people from passing through, carrying things. And so so what's happening here is that the temple is so large takes up a big footprint in the city. And if you're on one side of the city, you want to get to the other side of the city, you don't really want to, like, walk around. And so you just carry all your stuff and your donkeys and everything, and you just trick on through the temple where people are supposed to be worshiping. And so what you have now is this this highway of people's own convenience (laughs) streaming through the center of the temple with no regard for the God who dwells there. How quickly... Can the things of God become commonplace in our lives? And how easily do we take very good things that glorify God and twist them into things that glorify ourselves? Why is Jesus so angry? God looked, God's people looked religious, like a fig leaf in fig tree in full leaf, but no fruit was found there. And all of this countered yet another purpose for which the temple was built. Notice the second part of Jesus' quotation in verse 17. It's called a house of prayer for all nations. So here's, here's number two reason why the temple existed. The temple was built 
to draw the nations of the world to God. So, so one of the clear purposes of the, purposes of the temple was not just to provide a place of worship for the Jews, but to provide a witness to the watching world. So, so even in its creation, I mean, you listen to Solomon's prayer just before the God's fire falls and fills the temple. Listen to one of the things that Solomon prays for in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 33. He says, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. That they may know that this house that I've built is called by your name. Again, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, and listen to the emphasis of Isaiah 56, verse 6. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and doesn't profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will yet others to him besides those already gathered. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Do you hear the heart of God here for why the temple was constructed? In verse 8, I will gather others to him beside those already gathered. So what's, what's the purpose of the temple? The spectacle of it all was to draw people in who did not know God. And what they would experience there and what they would hear taught there and what they would see there is that there is one God over the universe and it's not the one they'd been worshiping. But it's the God of the Israelites. From the moment Adam and Eve were born, the, the mission was going to be clear. Fill the earth with the glory of God. He's always been about spreading his glory to every corner of the earth. The 35-acre court for the Gentile nations to come in and worship stood as a testimony. Salvation is for you. There's, there's room here. God is a, is, the God we serve is an evangelistic God. He's a glory overflowing and spreading God. His invitation is for those whom you would never think could draw near to God. But there's space in this place for you. The temple declared. But rather than drawing the nations in, the nations were being exploited in this place. Taken advantage of. Rather than finding the glory of the one true God, they entered into the temple courts and they found a system which looked a lot like the greedy and selfish world outside the walls. Why was Jesus so angry? Because he loves the nations. Because he loves the outcast and the sojourner and the impoverished and the lowly and the sinner who comes in repentance to pray. And in this moment, it was those people being led astray by the people who called themselves religious. Listen to me. This is very important for everyone in this room. This is very important. Glory exchange in your life is never a victimless crime. Hypocrisy is never a victimless crime. Your walk with God, whether you want it to or not, affects the watching world. You, you hear, hear what I'm saying? It, 
you claim to be a Christian, if it's known that you claim to be a Christian, you, you come to this your church, your representation of the value of God in your life versus the value you place on other things, it's being assessed by a watching world. What you post on Facebook or Instagram matters to a watching world. People who say they worship a God become representatives of that God whether they realize it or they want it or not. So let me ask you a question. Though you may say religious things, though you may do religious things, upon closer examination, would the non-Christians around you notice anything supernatural about your life? Would they notice real sacrifice, genuine love, meaningful prayer, love for the word, or would they just see a little bit cleaner version of the rest of the world. That's what the nations were seeing when they entered in to the temple of God. Why was Jesus so angry? Because he loves the glory of God and he hates when God is defamed by the people who claim to worship him. The temple was built for drawing near to the presence of God. The temple was built for drawing the nations of the world to God. So Jesus declares rebuke over the temple. And now we come to the conclusion of the sandwich. The chief priests and the scribes, obviously, they don't respond to Jesus' word. They don't repent. Uh, Verse 18 just says that they were angry. They want to destroy him. They're afraid because other people might listen to him. This basically just gets the ball rolling on Jesus' impending crucifixion. And then verse 19, it just transitions again. Verse 19 of, of chapter 11. And when evening came, they went out of the city, and they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So we're not talking about like it just looked droopy, right? <laughs> withered away to the roots, the the foundation. And verse 21, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, as if Jesus was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So the fruitless fig tree rebuked by Jesus at the beginning of the story has now died at the end of the story. What's the point, right? So there's two institutions here, two fruitless institutions that Jesus rebukes. He rebukes the fig tree, and he rebukes the temple. And now we've seen what happened to the fig tree. So the question on the reader's mind should be, what's going to happen to the temple? The story leaves you to discover that end on your own later on in the Gospel of Mark. But we know that the temple and the sacrificial system is over. Uh, Jesus actually predicts that there will not be one stone left on top of another in that temple. It will wither away to nothingness. And so here's where we need to to sort of land the plane over the next 10 minutes is, is okay. What does the destruction of that temple mean for us? I mean, theologically, why, why does that matter? I mean, for hundreds of years, the temple was the place where you met with God. And now here's Jesus walking into that t- temple, rebuking everybody, and then 
Gospel of Mark saying, it's over. Like, that's done. I want to close our time together with three implications for the withering away of the Old Testament temple. Implication number one. Jesus came to fulfill what the temple foreshadowed. I mean, do you know why the, Jesus, the, the, the temple could be destroyed? Everything that the temple symbolized was actually fulfilled in what Jesus accomplished. So this should stir worship in you if you're a follower of Christ as you consider this. Jesus became the dwelling place of God on earth. Because Jesus was God in human flesh. He was the temple of God. The place where you come if you want to draw near to the presence of God. He was the temple, not standing still in one place, but actually going out to the nations to draw them to himself. Jesus is the holiest of holies. He is the highest priest who came to offer the final and most perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb without spot or blemish whose blood would be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. It was by Jesus' death that the veil would be torn. Signifying to you and to me that the presence of God is now an open invitation through the blood of Jesus. Separation, guilt, and shame no longer have to be a part of your entry into the presence of God because Jesus took it all on himself at the cross. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. Brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way opened for us through the curtain that's through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith. If you want to draw near to the one true God this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus and believe. Because the sacrifice has been made. Why was Jesus so angry in the temple that day? Because all that was designed to point to him was being made a mockery. Jesus came to fulfill what the temple foreshadowed, but that's not all. Implication number two, what's it matter that the temple was going to be destroyed? Jesus came to make the church his new temple. So, so we now fulfill the purposes of that physical structure. Because of what Jesus did, God's presence is no longer restricted to brick and mortar. God makes himself, to known, us, God makes himself known in us, to us, and through us. So what are we, St. Rose Community Church? Collectively gathered together, we're the dwelling place of God Almighty. And if anyone wants to know what God is like or to hear his truth, they gather with us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, you are being built up together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You know what we're doing today, this morning, right now, in this moment? We're fulfilling 
the purpose of that temple. When we pray and we worship and we hear God's word and we respond to it and we have no blood sacrifices to make because we're just celebrating the one that was already made, if someone wants to draw near to God, they will see him and experience him when they gather with the new temple God has made, his church. Our lives are meant to shine as a spectacle for the glory of God. The nations are meant to watch how you live your life and then be drawn to the one true God. Implication number three. Jesus is coming again to make the world his temple. As we go to the nations to spread the presence and glory of God in our mission, as we gather for worship and scatter for mission to spread his presence to the ends of the earth, we look forward to the day where there will be no more mission trips. (laughs) We look forward to the day where there will be no more need to take the message of the one true God to people who do not yet have it. Because one day the promise of Christ is that what used to be a physical temple, what came in the person of Jesus, what God sent in the church, will one day be fully and finally complete. And the world will be his temple. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. This is the day we long for. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The whole story of the Bible could be told from the presence of God and his people to the presence of God and his people. The garden that we lost in sin, Christ has restored through his sacrifice and God is leading us back into. Revelation chapter 22 verse 1, as angel is giving the tour of the new world, should sound familiar of something that you saw in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river, the water, the life, and brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and, the, and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. In the new temple, in the new world, there will be no more fruitless trees. (laughs) So let me just conclude with this uh, question as we transition into a time of worship. If Jesus were to enter the courts of your heart and life, would he find fruit that corresponds with the leaves 
you put on display on the outside? Would he find a heart that loves drawing near to God and longs to reach the nations for his glory? Or would he find a fruitless heart that loves looking religious while worshiping self? Let's turn to Jesus this morning where we find forgiveness and where we find the purpose of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to fulfill what you've called us to be. Father, we pray that we would, as a chosen race and royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your possession, may we proclaim the excellencies of he who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Help us to fulfill the purpose of the temple and be the people whom the world can turn and find the presence of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.